любезный совсем не под пару. Ты цветушка кроза родного Кавказа. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and patrons who give monthly contributions to help us do what we're doing, provide you some interesting programming. So if you would like to support this podcast, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Euronaut. That, that's spelled E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T. Or to Euronaut.org and find the Patreon button and become a monthly contributor. So, Rusana, um, here's our second, our third episode, I guess, if we count the both, both the uh, gift for Stalin episodes. And you've been traveling, you know, you've left, you've left Vladivostok to visit your family in St. Petersburg. So I was just curious, maybe you can give listeners a sense of what are some of your observations traveling from one end of the Russian Federation to the other? I was made aware again that this is a huge country. I was completely exhausted after an 11-hour flight. But you know, the most surprising observation was the next morning when we had to go buy diapers for my son Nikolai. And we went to this neighborhood store, Dixie, and I was appalled at how cheap everything is in St. Petersburg. We've been paying twice as much for basic groceries, butter, milk, flour, chicken, eggs. And you know, some people say, well, you have to haul things into the Far East. That's why prices are so much higher. But that's actually not true because a lot of those milk products are produced in the Far East. So I'm not exactly sure why we've been overpaying so much and why prices are not standardized and why people like producers in the Far East can jack up the prices just because people, I guess, are able to pay as much or don't have any other alternatives and they kind of have to do it. There's no competition. I don't know what the reason is, but yeah. Is there always like a differentiation between prices? Like things are more expensive in Vladivostok or the Far East than say in the Western part of the country? Or is this because of inflation or sanctions or the war or even political decisions or just who knows, right? Just the market. I feel like they've historically been higher. During Soviet times, there was a reason for it because people went to work in the Far East and the Arctic and they were, they had salaries, they were significantly higher. So they were able to afford those groceries. And at the time too, a lot of those things were in fact uh, brought to the Far East and vegetables, fruit, certain kinds of meats. But today, I'm not sure if it's necessarily true, but the prices are still high. I know that a lot of those milk factories are, like, you know, in Primordia or Khabarovsk region, like, nearby. So there's no transportation costs, really. Are prices more expensive over the last year than, say, the previous year, since you've been living there for, what, two years now at least? (laughs) <laughs> for way too long, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the prices have definitely grown, for sure, after the war broke out. The prices for things like coffee, or for things that are, that they have been, they have always been imported. And anything else you, you noticed? Yeah, apart from those practicalities, I was just 
struck by how beautiful St. Petersburg is and how huge of a city it is and how much better the infrastructure is in St. Petersburg. I mean, I've lived in this city for three years, but I guess you develop a certain kind of amnesia or you get used to some, you get used to living in a certain place and then you kind of turn back into a country mouse. <laughs> but you know, it, in Vladivostok, um, Vladivostok has this ad board called Far Post, you know, that kind of refers to the fact that originally it was the Far Posts, you know, on the frontier, on the end of the country. But while I was in the cab, Going through the airport to our hotel, I realized that Vladivostok is still a far post. <laughs> when you look at Petersburg, it's just, you know, you can you can tell by infrastructure, by the size of it, by the number of people, by, by everything that is the heartland of the country. And, and it seems like Vladivostok is still trying to defend itself from Mother Nature that is, like, encroaching from side of it i don't know i mean it's just it's just my impressions that are subjective and maybe erroneous but that's just how i felt just flying in here yeah yeah well i think that that's a good segue into uh our episode today you know this is the first episode in our far east series and we have an interview uh with ed pulford i don't know if listeners will remember an interview i did with ed probably almost well over a year ago uh, and Soren Orbanski, who is a scholar of the Far East. So, you know, why don't, why don't you tell listeners a bit about this interview and how it fits into the series um, in general? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, first, Far East is a very dynamic region with a lot of Asian influence. Uh, Korean, Japanese, Chinese. However, I don't think that a lot of people are aware of this significant cross-pollination and influence from Asia, right? And the second reason is that the Russia-China border is one of the longest borders in the world. And we tend to think of this border as contained and sealed just because today it's very well protected and there's not much movement. But historically, this region has been very fluid and there was a lot of movement and exchange between people and you can still feel it like even in food that people eat in the in Vladivostok like I don't know again for example I started eating fern what is fern it's a plant that grows in the forest and you oh like the actual plant fern yes oh but, okay. but the, tr the tradition of eating pickled fern uh, it comes from Korean Cuisine. And the Koreans were the first ones to harvest fern in Primori and Sahalin. But this is a staple food on in every in every household in uh, Primori and Sahalin and maybe other regions. So I guess we just wanted to talk with Ed and Soren, who are experts on borderland regions, and to tell our listeners more about this. Uh, dynamic exchange between Russia and various Asian countries. Okay, so why don't we just jump into it and introduce our guests. Ed Pulford is a linguist and anthropologist who has spent several years working, studying, and traveling throughout China, the Russian Far East, the Koreas, and Japan. He's currently a lecturer in Chinese cultural studies at the University of Manchester. 
He's also a regular host on the podcast New Books in East Asian Studies. He's the author of Mirrorlands, Russia, China, and Journeys in Between, published by Hearst. And Soren Urbanski is a historian of modern Russia and China. He's a global and transnational research fellow at the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. And since 2021, he's been heading up its Pacific office at UC Berkeley. Soren has written three monographs, including Beyond the Steppe Frontier, a history of the Sino-Russian border, published by Princeton University Press. Here's Ed Pulford and Soren So, you've both worked extensively on Northeast Asia, specifically the borderlands of Russia and China. And for many people, including myself, this is an area that I don't know much about. In our studies, we don't really pay a lot of attention to the Far East. So how would you describe this region and its people to someone who knows very little about it? And let's start with you, Soren. Well, in many ways, it is a region as we imagine it to be one. It has a very harsh continental climate with uh, severe, uh, very cold winters, but also hot summers and few people but there's also surprising moments when you think about that region. For instance, when you put a 500-kilometer radius around Vladivostok, you have a population of 300 million people. So that's six times more than 500 kilometers around Moscow. So it's actually, depending on what part of the Russian Far East you're talking about, it is actually a region that is densely populated. It has many unused opportunities, I would say. And one could, of course, add the bridges that are not existing or only very few bridges that are existing. I'm sure we'll talk about this later as well. I think what I'd add would be around the idea of borders and borderlands in general. These are spaces where one often expects some kind of blurring or continuity maybe from one side to another, whether that's demographic or, of course, ecological and other things. But by and large, especially when it comes to the, yeah, the politics and the demographics of this area, it's somewhere characterized by pretty stark distinctions across a lot of these borders, I guess. Quite s- strong states right, that have arrived in this region comparatively recently, especially when it comes to the Chinese and the Russian case, only like 150 years old or so. They exhibit, therefore, different features to that that you might see in other borderland spaces, the kind of iconic border, I guess, especially for a North American audience, the US-Mexican one, or even less distinct, the US-Canada one. So I think that's something to say about the the borders that run through this region, whether it's China-Russia or indeed Korea-Russia, Korea-China, and the nearby presence of Japan. These are all quite solid, distinct blocks of thing, if that doesn't sound too woolly. And what about in terms of people? Because the other thing is that it's a very diverse place in terms of not just the the peoples of those various nation states that are in the region, but also within those you know, nation states, there's a mix of people. Soren, can you speak a little bit about the ethnic diversity? Well, in terms of ethnic diversity, it is still an ethnically very diverse place. But if you look a 100 years back, it had been much more diverse than it is today. For instance, if you look at Vladivostok, almost half of its population were Asian, ethnic, like either Korean or Chinese. There were also many Europeans, Americans there, Jews. So it was very, very mixed. In that sense, it has become more homogeneous during the Soviet centuries. But there's also lots of people who think of themselves as having Ukrainian ancestors, for instance. You have many surnames that hint at Ukrainian blood in their veins. And so in that sense, it's very diverse still. 
when it comes to the Ukrainian side of things is that at least fairly anecdotally, the mode of speech in certain small towns and villages in Primordia, the maritime province that Vladivostok is the capital of, seem to exhibit certain features similar to Ukrainian inflected Russian. Russian is a language that doesn't vary a great deal during this vast space that it is spoken across. But even in smaller settlements where you've got a more long-standing and more homogenous Ukrainian community or what were known as Mal- Malarossi, the kind of little Russians that when they settled there 150 or so years ago, have managed to preserve certain things there. But we shouldn't overrake the kind of Ukrainianness of these places either, I think, because it's not like they necessarily think of themselves as primarily Ukrainian. I remember one case when I traveled with a friend of mine whose name is Ivan in Irkutsk. He was, for me, it was, I think, the fifth time in Irkutsk. And for him, it was the first time. So he was really excited. And he said he has to go to the Catholic church because his great-grandfather used to go there. His great-grandfather was actually from Poland. And that's quite typical. You would have these biographies. I mean, his name and also his surname didn't indicate that he has any Polish blood. But <laughs> you would find many of these cases where where you can still see the ethnic mixing from pre-1917 Russian Empire. Yeah, because there is Russian settlers in the imperial period. Of course, the Far East was a dumping ground for political exiles and then under Soviet period labor camps, indeed people who were deported. How much of that ethnic mixture also is a result of all of these other historical processes of kind of the state trying to populate the area? The Russian Far East, as we know it as of today, became part of Russia in the mid-19th century, in the 1850s to be more precise. But until the early 20th century, the state was there, but it was in many ways non-existent. For instance, the Russian customs border uh, ran across or along Lake Baikal. So everything east of Lake Baikal was actually out like Porto Franco, so not part of the Russian customs zone. So it was a free trade tra- territory. The reason was that the state was too weak to actually monitor this border e- economically. And this is also reflected in the way it has been populated. What is most striking is that a party of maybe 10 to 20,000 Cossacks took this region from the Chinese. So there was a very limited number of soldiers occupying this region. And even the settlers that came later on were, in terms of numbers, really minimal. It was like five-digit numbers. And this would only change in the early 20th century after the Trans-Siberian Railroad had been finished so that then settlers would move in significant numbers. Actually, for the construction of the railroad, the most common way of transit was with the Russian fleet from Odessa all the way to the Suez Canal and then around India and the Strait of Malacca to, to, to Vladivostok. So it was very detached from, from the Russian heartland. This also explains the demographic development in, in pre-Soviet times. I think a lot of that settlement reflects the fact that here, perhaps more so than the space that lied between this part of Russia and the European parts of Russia, it's been a very deliberate less incremental kind of settlement process. Some similar processes of indigenous dispossession and, and ecological damage have occurred, but arguably maybe even in more intense forms in some cases, just because A, this was proceeding at a point from the mid-19th century onwards when the sort of technological capacity of, of settler colonialism, of empire, was greater than in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries when Siberia, the middle part, was being settled a great deal. But also, it was something where 
exactly as Zoran mentioned, the constituencies that arrived here were often coming from the furthest westernmost part of the empire. So a very deliberate looping all the way around. I was, I was making the case that this was pre-Soviet settlement patterns. But if you look at Soviet history, then you can see that also during these state-sponsored um, settlement campaigns, one great example is Komsomolsk on Amur, a city that was founded in the 1930s. Many people also came from the western borderlands of the Soviet Union. Or then, after World War II, most new settlers came from the very western border regions of the Soviet Union because these were completely destructed and the only place they could go to was actually the Russian Far East, and they were supported in, in a sense that they got free tickets and maybe some subsidies. So this policy of taking people from the westernmost regions to the very Far East continued in Soviet times. What does this say about the identity? Because we do often hear about how the Far East has a very regional identity and that's somewhat separated from what we might associate with the core of, say, Russia. And as you said, Soren, historically, the state has been pretty weak and it's very far. <laughs> so is this the case that there is a, a, an identifiable or even self-proclaimed regional identity there? Or is this kind of overblown in your estimation? Yeah, I think one does observe certain issues over which there's a degree of cohesion. If we're talking about the Slavic population who form the majority of this region, there's a skepticism of the center, a certain cynicism about what powers that be are doing. I wouldn't care to measure or speculate exactly whether that's higher in degree than one would hear around a kitchen table in any number of other Russian locations. But certainly I think there's something that, especially in more recent times, has emerged as a awareness of geographical location, which maybe wasn't such a factor in earlier decades, and certain pride in having a familiarity with interesting and obviously in recent decades very successful Asian countries. But nevertheless, people very happily embrace the idea of being European, to what extent that might have shifted in literally the last bleak last uh, 14, 15 months, I don't know. But certainly when it comes to self-comparisons with Koreans, Chinese or Japanese people, this term like would be something that people would say in opposition to people from China, despite coming from somewhere that is east of all of China, right? Vladivostok lies further east than any point in China. That kind of cultural identity is still there, which again pulls people all the way back to the continent at the other end of the Eurasian landmass. And the other thing I'd add, I guess, is that what Zoran just mentioned about these Soviet-subsidized settlement programs during the mid to late part of the 20th century, there were salary boosts and various benefits for encouraging people to move to this still, at that time, very depopulated part of the, the Soviet space. That has reversed in very rapid terms in the decades since the 1990s, such that 23% of the population of the uh, Russian Far East has left in the time between then and now. And it's interesting that that departure has been the response to the drying up of subsidies, the lack of central support or subsidy, the response has not been a coalescence around a political sense of deprivation or a kind of we are here and we want to remain here and we'd feel abandoned and abused and we want to set up something separate. Actually, in many cases, the response has evidently been we're out of here. We, we don't see any future here for ourselves. So I think the lack of bedding down of a local political identity in opposition to the misfortune that many people have suffered in the last 30 years is also a significant reflection of 
maybe the limits in some respects of that local identity. And Soren, how do you see it? I would say there's still a certain pride in taking opposition against Moscow. When you think about the imported cars, Japanese cars, and the symbolism behind it, and when Moscow cracked down on it in the late 2000s, there's this wonderful book, A Right Steering Wheel. So the symbol of we are actually opposing Moscow and have a creative thriving business with Japanese used cars, that gives this movement, even though it's politically not strong, a strong kind of symbolism or a strong identity. Certainly, there's this notion of Europeanness as opposed to the Asian neighbors. And if you ask people on the street, do you feel are European, you would get a higher percentage of people answering yes in Vladivostok than, let's say, in Ryazan. But there's also this notion of we are the forepost, this is forepost. So they are defending basically the fortress Russia, maybe also in Vladivostok, but also I've witnessed that a lot in eastern Siberia, uh, so in Transbaikalia and, and regions like that. So this notion of we have to stand here, even if there's just one man left, I'll have to take up a gun, <laughs> just stand here so we won't be overrun. So this notion is very strong still, uh, despite um, the friendship rhetoric we can witness today with, let's say, China. Yeah. I heard once a comparison in the identity or mentality of people who live in the Far East with, say, the Wild West of America. This kind of carefree libertarian life, take the law into your own hands, there's no state. Is there something like that in the region as well, Soren? I think there was a time where you could make this argument for the 1990s, for instance. Also, the Russian mafia was quite strong, more prominent maybe than in other Russian provinces. But I would say at present, I don't see it that much. I would say that the state returned and is tr probably even more present than in other parts of the Russian Federation nowadays and deliberately cracking down on any such movements or, and also investing quite significantly in making the case that this is Russia, this is part of our culture. I mean, just think about the branch of the Marinsky Theater in Vladivostok and they're building a new museum now and those bridges. So there's quite a significant investment also in symbolic markers in the urban landscape to make the case this is Russia and this will stay Russia. And this is also a reflection of what happened in of the neglect of the 1990s. Yeah, I'd turn the question around and see the comparison with the American West in the experience of indigenous inhabitants of this region. Because one thing that certainly is the case when you compare these two settings is that since the 1990s, one thing that really did alter is that indigenous groups, I've done some research with Nanai people, Nanaitsi, who live largely in Khabarovsky Krai, north of Khabarovsk, the city itself. And their experience of that period was moving out of a space where their ethnic literacy was defined largely by the dictats of a Soviet paradigm for understanding ethnicity and ethnic and null identity and so on, to one where they were suddenly involved in lots of conversations that exactly did encourage them to think about these connections between other settler colonial processes and what they might have in common with, say, Native Americans or Maori or any number of other First Nations groups across the world. So I think looked at from, from a perspective there, it's actually been a real conversation that has flourished over the last 30 years to try to understand the place of those peoples in dialogue with other largely European centered empires across time. So that's one one parallel relevant to make, even if, as exactly as Soren says, the state is at least symbolically very present. 
And what has been the experience with the state coming in? And I'm assuming it's coming in heavily because of the natural resources in the Far East that they want to tap for the most part and maybe plug into the East Asian economic sphere. But for indigenous peoples, what has been their general experience after the 1990s, say in the 2000s? Well, largely dissatisfactory, certainly exactly as we've mentioned. The performance of statehoods is there very powerfully. I think exactly what Soren mentioned about being the outpost of the frontier in the sense of a defensive front line, frontier line, fed through in a large degree, I think, from the fact that during the Soviet period, there was a strong military presence as well, a defensive presence in, against China in particular. So that kind of martial heritage very recently, I think, has contributed to that atmosphere. For the indigenous peoples, there has been a reassessment of their relationship with a state that, on one hand, perhaps has receded from their lives, you know, in terms of being very involved in sort of shaping and defining their ethnic identity and trying to draw quite formal taxonomical boundaries around what it means to be Nanai or, or Evenki or anything else. On the other hand, because of decades of experience of interacting with the state through that system, the disappearance of the state has really meant that people's ability to speak as indigenous people vis-a-vis -vis the state has become a lot more complicated. In 2007, Russian state removed the nationality category from identification documents, which has meant that proving that you are belong to an indigenous group is much harder and much more difficult, therefore, to access the benefits that the state continues to offer people living in indigenous areas. Now, it should be said that those are not especially generous, and the experience of indigenous peoples is largely still one of lack of access to and lack of ownership over traditional fishing grounds or hunting grounds or any kind of domain that may once have been largely within their sphere. There's no reservation system. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a model necessarily, but there are <laughs> no very casinos. few... No casinos. Well, there is there's a casinos outside Vladivostok, but not run by indigenous people. <laughs> exactly, <No>. exactly. <laughs> Certainly ma the material circumstances of people has absolutely not improved and got worse by and large, even if on the level of identity and expression, there is a greater openness and discussion and ability to self-define and shape some identity questions. Some of these villages where Nanai people live, right by the river Amur, this in theory plentiful source of fish and water and so on, do not have clean water or safe water to drink. And it has to be brought in by van to the villages and tap. So there's real catastrophic situation in many of these areas. So Soren, in your book, you're looking at the Sino-Russian border as a periphery that's between these two very powerful empires, China and Russia. And as you already mentioned, both metropoles are trying to exert influence and control over this region. Can you give us a bit of history of that dynamic between Russia and China trying to exert their center on the Far East? Russia and China have been neighbors for four centuries now, but really only during the last century or so, or maybe since the late 19th century, the border became of strategic importance for both sides. Until the mid-19th century and that were late 19th century, one may say, there was no, not a very kind of strong investment by the state into this border region from both sides. It like really with the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railroad and in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, 
it was the first time that the Russian state made significant investments in that region. And also in terms of who guarded this border, who patrolled this border, how many people were there. This this would really changed only with the opening of the railroad. And I also mentioned the customs border before. The customs border was like the, the course of the customs border was changed once this railroad had been opened. Before that, it was still long, like Baikal, now it covered the entire Russian territory. But I would even argue that not so much the infrastructure, but actually geo- geopolitical threat really made a significant change. And that was um, when Japan began to occupy parts of China, first the Northeast, and then it moved further into China. But really with the early 1930s, that the Soviet Union feared a Japan potentially attacking the Soviet Union at some point. And we had those attacks in the late 1930s on the Mongolian border or Lake Khasan on, in the Russian Far East. So there was this, one may call it, war scare. And to give like some numbers, I mean, by the late 1930s, I think the Soviet Union had about seven to 800,000 troops in the Russian Far East. And the Japanese had about the same number of soldiers in, in Manchuria or in Northeast China. So there was really this fear that Japan would attack. And it was during this time when actually the Soviet Union for the first time was really able to completely, not completely, but significantly control movement across this border. So it was during this time that actually there were enough people on the ground to put an end to uncontrolled border movement. It was perceived very normal by, or as, as normal way of life by, by locals on both sides of the border. In many ways, many of the border regions have been populated by the same ethnic or by the same kin, so to speak, ethnic groups. The Buryats, the region I worked on, it was mostly Buryat or other Mongol ethnic, uh, ethnic tribes. But with the soldiers moving in or the troops moving in, also people, other people came to this border. And it was during that time, at least on the Soviet side, that the border had been in, it became increasingly demographically dominated by Slavic people, mostly Russians, but also Ukrainians. And, and then there's a similar process that you can observe on the Chinese side, though it was slightly later, that is mostly during the People's Republic of China when there were intense campaigns to populate this border area and now i would say all all those indigenous people that used to live there are ethnic minorities but that was not always the case and even the russians who lived there that moved there maybe in the 19th century or even before their loyalty to the state was always ambiguous in in many ways but i wouldn't go as far as saying that the state has always been strong there it even afterwards, even after World War II, the state, the military presence was re- reduced in the 1950s and reinforced in the 1960s. But that doesn't mean that the state was very strong. For instance, what the Soviet Union was struggling with in the 60s and 70s was actually also what we, what Ed mentioned about the 1990s and 2000s, a depopulation of, of those border regions. So many people actually moved away, not from the cities like Vladivostok or Khavarovsk, but from the countryside. So uh, villages were depopulated and even economic incentives, like one one was called Grabavaya uh, Nadvavka, so coffin allowances. So because you would be the first who would die when the Chinese would attack. So even those economic incentives um, would not be attractive enough to keep people there. So that, that was something that the Soviet Union always struggled with. And, and Ed, today, what, what about this dynamic between the fact that the region is Russia and China, two strong states, 
even today? How does that figure in in present day life? I think a key thing to add here too, and since we've just referred back to the depopulation question and this massive decline in the population of the Russian Far East over the last 30 years, well, Northeast China too is depopulating not, not so quickly and from a much higher base in terms of overall numbers. But the figure for that roughly for the northeastern three provinces of China from, I guess, around 2000 is that around 10% of the population has left China. And that's on a background of the Chinese population continuing to grow, right? Now slowing and about to peak, I think, overall on the national level. But this is also a place that's emptying out within a Chinese context, arguably just as remarkably, given that the, ba- the broader picture of Russian population since the 90s, well, it's been a bit up and down, but quite a bit of down, at least at the beginning. Whereas in China, there, there's been a more or less continuous growth, but this has bucked that trend. So I think the kind of local experience of life in, in this region is one of being somewhat detached from the national story on the Chinese side, and maybe experiencing a very intense version of the national story on the Russian side, at least as far as the collapse and the kind of subsequent difficulties that people experience as a result of shock therapy and economic reform and the demise of state-supported and sort of backed economic systems. So I think the way people live the state story is, is something that's very interesting to delve into on both sides of this border, because exactly as Zoran also just mentioned, it does buck some trends as, as far as the, your kind of broad understandings of them are concerned, or indeed it, it offers indications of a even more intensified version of what's going on nationally. I think the other thing to say is that from the perspective of the central states, it's true that there's been, maybe Zoran could speak to the consistency of this long durée process of maybe fortification and increasing consolidation and assertion of state presence at the borders. But I think we're at a point now, especially with the contemporary China-Russia relationship, that both sides are actually quite comfortable with the idea that this is somewhere there's, where there's not too many people and maybe not too much going on. There have been these symbolic acts and the bridges and so on. But I think China and Russia at this point, in very broad terms, prefer to interact between Moscow and Beijing. They don't really want to think too much about the fact that they do actually have this physical join covering this vast space that we started off talking about i i fully fully agree with with that on that that beijing and moscow really want to keep out this kind of troublesome border that it has been for like a couple of centuries now so but on the other hand i had mentioned the depopulation of the chinese northeast which is true and remarkable even not only in in the industrial centers of of northeast china but also when you go pass through villages, abandoned villages in the Northeast. So it's, it's, this is quite remarkable. But on the other hand, and this is, gives you also an idea of the symbolic importance of this border, the central government heavily invested in those border cities, in, 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 in mostly three cities directly bordering Russia, that is Manjoli, Hecha, and Sufenha, by building airports, highways, and also by just making it attractive to move there. Like, for instance, Manjoli was a city of 30,000 people in, in the late 1980s. Now it has 300,000. And I think if you look at the numbers, it would be an even starker contrast in Hecha. And if you look at this, basically, Hecha is on the, on, the, on, on the Chinese side, and then you have Blagoveshensk on the Russian side. And these are the two cities that really face each other. And until the 1980s, you just had Blagoveshensk and there was nothing, literally nothing on the on the Chinese side. And now you have this kind of competition of who, who has the higher buildings. And, and 
clearly China is winning that race. So in, in that sense, I would say there was an attempt by the Chinese government to really build those kind of showcase cities, so to speak, for, for a number of reasons, mostly also to attract Russian customers, or Russian tourists. But then after, particularly after 2014, when the ruble lost value also against the yuan, it became less attractive for Russians to, to, to go to China for, for, for shopping and other purposes. It also became a travel destinations for Chinese, like Chinese nationals, not from that region, but from other parts of China to experience Russia in China, so to speak. So it has a strong kind of touristic, domestic to dimension, this border. And it's also a display of, I would say, superiority. I mean, they try to make the case that we are economically and culturally winning this, this race against Russia. That, that's actually really interesting that you have on the one hand, this kind of face off, right? And, but on the other hand, in terms of Beijing and Moscow, they just don't want to talk about or address, address that region explicitly to each other. Ed, do you know, do you have a sense of why? There'd be a, an essentialist argument to make about them both being these strong states that have exactly had a recent shum, somewhat shared experience of state socialist sort of t categories. And, and, and again, this kind of taxonomical apportioning territory and space and people and so on in a way that makes it nicer to think about abstract entities sort of operating as though they're just floating in space rather than things that have to deal with the messy realities of life on the ground. Maybe that's reflected in, again, not to over-romanticize this 20th century history of state socialism, but a kind of Promethean approach to nature and space and the kind of idea that the physical external world can be tamed and ordered and nicely portioned up such that there is no friction and there is no kind of fundamental issue with dealing with proximity or, or, or the messiness of physical reality. That's maybe a little bit in the clouds as far as the explanation is concerned, but I think exactly because of this troublesome history and, and the kind of to and fro of interactions in recent memory being so smooth or harmonious and the mood music coming from the political centers of each country not also being particularly friendship-oriented or even in our grim current era, bromance-oriented when it comes to the Xi-Putin dynamic. I think that the awareness of that is, is probably in people's, in people's minds too. So I should say, I think part of this dynamic is also produced by the kind of mirrored experience across, across each side and the kind of way that there's been a parallel set of projects enacted, even in very, very different cultural terms. And we shouldn't forget as we discussed at the beginning, that these are places where demographically the populations are extremely starkly different in that almost everyone or the vast majority of population of the Russian Far East is Eastern Slavic, Russian or other backgrounds that we mentioned, whereas in the Northeast, the vast majority of the population is Han Chinese. But, you know, there's still some sort of isomorphism, I guess, across the border there, which produces a similar attitude, maybe on both sides, at least when the center is looking to this region. Yeah, I think, I mean, like this, we had this return of fuzziness that was reminiscent of the early 20th century in the 1990s and way into the early 2000s. And I think both states are quite happy that they were able to channel again all kinds of contacts, um, for instance, air travel rather than walking across the border or taking Mashutka across the border, because this is easier to control. It's, it's more, more beneficial from a, like a state point of view. And if you look at 
the overall kind of significance of trade, the border trade or the local trade has been very significant until the early 20th century and then again in the 1990s. And now if you look at the trade volume and um, the share that the regional, like the neighboring provinces of both sides have in their trade, in those statistics, it's sharply declining. So it's really, rather than getting into trouble at the border, they would like to invest in pipelines or other projects that are not related to the border. And because there's so much overlap, not only economically speaking, but also geopolitically speaking, that China, for instance, rather willing to sacrifice some of potential gains, economically speaking, by local border trade to have a stable and friendly relation with Russia, relationship with Russia rather than in the 1990s, where there were no attempts by, by the Chinese state to regulate this Chinese migration or like trade to the Russian Far East that has now seceded. And I think that really suggests that this is something specific about these two parties' relationship, because another place we can look for some explanation of this bilateral attitude to this region is other borders that each country has, right? And I think it's fair to say, maybe not exclusively, and of course, we're living in a period where actually Moscow is taking an egregiously violent and, and acquisitive attitude towards some of its borders. But Russia's borders in general are more fortified and more kind of aggressively delineated and defended than, for example, other parts of Chinese borders. Now, there are other places along the Chinese land borders that are also for a variety of geopolitical and also grim reasons when we talk about Xinjiang and the mass incarceration of Uyghurs and so on going on there. But if we look to southwest China, there are cases where the borders are actually extremely loosely enforced, or at least were until the COVID pandemic lockdowns, where people are crossing at, at will and where there's not even a particularly clear distinction in some of the forested areas between southwestern Yunnan province in China and Myanmar or northern Vietnam. There's really no clear place where you can find a border marker or nothing like the kind of really consistent fortification that is there all the way along, even when there are natural barriers along the China-Russia border, like the enormous River Amur, which covers a huge portion of it. There's still a significant presence of, of military and, and outposts on that, on that place. So I think it says something specific about, exactly as Owen mentioned, the kind of desire of both sides to keep this relationship well-managed and for both sides recognizing different stakes in this kind of keeping this thing fairly peaceful or the strategically important and you don't want any mess that comes with dealing with the real people in real places and what about what about south korea north korea and japan in in this relationship between russia and china over the far east how do they figure in there if either of you could speak to that well i yeah i did my phd research and have been working on a new book about this exact little nexus where China, Russia, and North Korea all join one another. So I can at least speak partly about the kind of Korean dimension, because the one border town that uh, Zoran didn't mention earlier that is part of this kind of arc of locations along the China-Russia border on the, on the Chinese side is another location, Hunchun, which actually falls within a Korean autonomous region of Northeast China. So again, talking about some of the demographics and the distribution of people. There's a significant number of Koreans on the Russian side, many of whom actually were deported in the 1930s from this region under Stalin, and many of whom died, tens of thousands, I think, died in this process overall, deported to Central Asia, but have since the 90s, in many cases, returned, or maybe not in vast numbers, but some thousands of people are now living back in 
part of southern Primoria, adjacent to China. The intervening generations have meant that many of them now do not speak any Korean and are largely only Russian speaking. But there's been an interesting process also during since the 90s of cross-border reconnection and even the creation of sort of fictive relations with Koreans in that northeastern part of China too. So former Soviet Koreans, a group known as Koryo Saram in, in, in Korean or in, also in Russian referred to as Koryo Saram, meaning Korean people or Koryo people, have crossed into that northeastern part of China along with lots and lots of other Russians who've come, Russian citizens who've come during that period and found Chinese Koreans there subject who've not been deracinated in the same way, and many of whom actually have preserved Korean language and, and culture, having lived in more concentrated communities for a lot longer. But they actually do form a sort of aggregating population across this border. And certain trade networks and kinds of dynamics have evolved by virtue of that connection, a sort of ethnic connection that doesn't stem from necessarily a great deal of organic link. You know, the, the, the kind of violence of that 20th century experience means that People's actual ability to trace, you know, relatives and ancestry has become very, very difficult in many of these cases. But Koreans from both China and Russia, neither of them a Korea. And there's also two Koreas, of course, to choose from if you're looking for places where Koreans live. But there's almost a sort of outside Korea, Koreanness conversation that's been part of their interaction too. And I would say that actually speaking to both groups at this point, Neither really has any particularly strong interest in North Korea, despite the, well, not maybe not despite, actually, precisely because of the experience of, of state socialist extremes that has been a big part of their lives over the last few decades. But South Korea has also been a huge part of that post-90s story, also for both groups, because the South Korean state offers preferential visa application processes and long-term stay options for what the, what the South Korean state defines as Jewe Dongpo, like a co-ethnic people abroad, basically outside Korea. So there are options there for both Chinese Koreans and former Soviet Koreans to spend time in Korea, and, and many have done so, and many do now, actually. We've just got to a point where when it comes to the Chinese side of the border, there are now more Chinese Koreans in South Korea, as of the beginning of last year, than there are in the Korean autonomous part of China. So around 700,000 in each place, but a few more in South Korea. So that kind of region, curiously enough, retains a kind of demographic unity, despite lots of these dividing processes that have occurred. Well, one could even make the case that in the Russian case, the Korean ethnic minority consists actually of at least two groups. One that Ed just mentioned, deported by under Stalin in the 1930s, mostly to Central Asia and then parts of, of this this group returned to the Russian Far East. But the other group that is, I, I would argue, um, kept its kind of cultural, ethnic identity more during Soviet times was where this Koreans in, in Sakhalin, so on the island Pacific island of Sakhalin, who actually came to Sakhalin or the southern part of Sakhalin while it was part of the Japanese empire called Karafuto. So the Japanese army or the Japanese state brought them there as forced labor but after 45 they didn't return and so they didn't have this um, experience of stalinist repressions at the other koreans which make them quite distinct from from the other korean russians so to speak i think these things illustrate the kind of patchiness of these regional cooperations because there's nothing similar or even really thinkable between the russia and japan uh the 
territorial disputes over certain islands, which within the same oblast, the same region as Sakhalin that Zoran just mentioned, the Kuril Islands, as they're known in Russian, or the Northern Territories in Japan remains a kind of sticking point. And one of their great champions, Shinzo Abe, has died, obviously, or assassinated fairly recently. So it's unclear quite where that will go at this point. So I think the kind of regional relationships are very patchy at best. And, and this, as exactly as was just mentioned, the fact that there were suddenly all these South Korean tourists in in, in, in Vladivostok was really an amazing development and a kind of cosmopolitan atmosphere that I think that brought with it over only in very recent years. I was last there right at the end of 2019. And yeah, it really was a kind of stunning thing to see. The other thing I'd add, of course, is that I think this has been a recent news story, but the fact that Russians can go the other way has been an interesting quirk of the recent mobilization response, right, by many Russians. Because actually, although theoretically that could happen, South Korea has suspended the direct flights that that were, ju- that were just mentioned. And so there's still a ferry, as far as I'm aware, between Vladivostok and uh, this Sokcho, this uh, town on the eastern coast of South Korea. But uh, I think access to Korea for younger Russians wanting to, uh, male Russians wanting to avoid the draft has not really been quite, re- re- you know, not been a destination in the same way that Central Asian republics or other, other states have. That was Ed Pulford and Soren Urbanski. Ed Pulford is a linguist and anthropologist who has spent several years working, studying, and traveling throughout China, the Russian Far East, the Koreas, and Japan. He's currently a lecturer in Chinese Cultural Studies at the University of Manchester. He's also a regular host on the podcast New Books in East Asian Studies. He's the author of Mirrorlands, Russia, China, and Journeys in Between, published by Hearst. And Soren Urbanski is a historian of modern Russia and China. He's a global and transnational history fellow at the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. And since 2021, he's headed up its specific office at UC Berkeley. Soren has published three books, including Beyond the Steppe Frontier, A History of the Sino-Russian Border, published by Princeton University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Uh, you know, the Eurasian Knot is new. This is our third episode. So we'd like to hear what you think of it so far and uh, our interviews. So, you know, tag us on social media, send us a message. We'd also love to have your support. Uh, the Eurasian Knot is a deep. Let me try that again. As always, we'd love to have your support. The Eurasian Knot is a nonprofit educational endeavor and it relies on the support of listeners and other institutions to keep it free to, free and uh, free of advertisements. So please help us keep it that way. So go to euronot.org and find that Patreon button and become a monthly contributor. Until next time, bye. bye. Чики чалы, а потом ее трезвым стол не убежал.